Hey there, downtownians. Welcome to this week's Downtown the Podcast, episode 33. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by Knights Brewing Company, German style beer from the woods of Maine. Rich Kimball, producer Carrie Haskell here from our Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, where our daily show launches forth every single weekday afternoon, 4 to 6 Eastern Time, on WZON, WKIT HD3, streaming audio available on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com, and you can download the WZON app to listen to us, the station, anything else that you like. Uh, two good conversations coming up on this week's edition of the podcast, one with a an Academy Award nominee who has turned her attention to writing and uh, being an outstanding follow on Twitter as a, a political commentator of sorts, Quinn Cummings. And uh, we begin this week's show by talking with a very talented author who's written tremendous biographies of baseball legends Sandy Koufax, Mickey Mantle, and now has turned her attention to Babe Ruth with her brand new book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. We had a chance to talk about that book with author Jane Levy. This book, like all your books, about more than just baseball, this one really chronicles, in many ways, the rise of modern celebrity. You know, when the book was published and it first appeared on Amazon, my editor uh, called me triumphantly to say, Janie, you're a historian. They've listed you under history books, not not as well (laughs) as sports. And I was thrilled because I was so terrified. Um to take what I perceived as a very large and precarious step into writing about history as well as, you know, just the facts and figures about batting and throwing and hitting. And so um, I'm grateful that you said that because that was what I was aiming to do. Well, and it really was in many ways, particularly the year that the book centers around 1927. Uh, it was the age of celebrity with you know, Valentino, Charles Lindbergh, and these larger-than-life characters seemingly everywhere you looked, but none bigger than the babe. Yeah, I'd put him on, on Mount Rushmore of, of, of fame in 1927. I, what I wanted to do, Rich, uh, to be serious for one second, is give people feeling of what it was to be Babe Ruth at the apogee of fame, at the exact moment in history when fame was being reinvented by technology, by marketing, by public relations. And I wanted also people to feel what it was like to be around him, because unlike today's, you know, mega stars, who, of course, still, you know, are... um, whatever they might like to say, are still infinitesimal compared to his <laughs> shadow, the shadow he cast. Um, he was so accessible. I mean, that's the only thing that's not modern about him. You know, you look at the picture that we used on the um, what's called the end papers for the book, meaning the inside the cover, um, and, and we used this picture of him taken in, in uh, Syracuse in 1925 <laughs> when 5,000 boys you know, careened out of a bandbox ballpark to try to cram themselves into a single frame with Babe Ruth. And if you look at it, they're, they're as euphoric as he is. They're draped all over him. I mean, one kid's got a, his arm, you know, kind of wrapped around Babe's neck like a cheap boa. And 
you know, feature that today. Can you imagine, you know, uh, Aaron Judge allowing people to climb on him like that? <laughs> I mean, there'd be bodyguards out there to escort him off the field. But Babe Ruth loved it. He needed it. It completed him. And, and so that was why he was the perfect person to be this first model of modern celebrity because he welcomed it so much. Well, now, of course, today where we scrutinize every detail of, of an athlete's personal life, uh, Ruth was very much a flawed hero, but in some ways, uh, did that make him the right hero for his time? Well, you know, it's, uh, people didn't really know quite how flawed he was. <laughs> that was part <laughs> of the difference. You know, the one of the other things that was being created um, then was the tabloid culture uh, that, you know, would take advantage of popular culture and augment it. The first newspaper that was, uh, you know, the first tabloid in America was the Daily News, which went to press for the first time in June 1919 and invented the back page in November 1919. And while it wasn't deliberately created for Babe Ruth, he occupied it. Um, for the first time when after the sale to New York on January 6th, 1920, and would fill it up after that. Um, so, you know, sports writing in those days was a very different kind of animal. For one thing, they didn't actually go down and interview athletes. Nobody went down to the locker room right. to get quotes. <laughs> but the irony is they knew these guys. They wouldn't go down to the locker room and ask a question, but they would go to Babe Ruth's apartment for dinner, and it would all be off the record because there was this clubhouse omerta. You know, you just didn't write about personal things. And so as a result of that, um, the, the athletes, and particularly Babe Ruth, felt comfortable really being themselves. So these guys knew far more about the people they covered than they wrote. And that changed, or began to change. There's a sort of there's a whole uh, thing in the book about when Captain Joe Patterson, the publisher mm. of the Daily News, decided in August 1925 to um, abandon the customary, um, you know, speak no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil, and published a picture of Babe Ruth's mistress, and uh, on the front page of the Daily News. And that picture, because technology had just been invented that allowed for it, was sent overnight by a system invented by the Chicago Tribune called Telepix that was sent overnight to Chicago and to Los Angeles. And while it was a prototype of the AP wire photo service that would not come into use until the 30s um, and widespread use, and it was very expensive, you could nonetheless do it in 1925. And you did it for things that were really important, like Babe Ruth's 60th home run 27, and like the revelation that he was living with another woman in 1925 when he was suspended and fined back $5,000 by the Yankees for showing up late uh, to a game in St. Louis. We're talking with Jane Levy, uh, author of the wonderful book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth, 
and the world he created. The other larger-than-life figure in this book uh, is Christy Walsh, who was uh, a little bit Scott Boris and a whole lot of P.T. Barnum and uh, really reinvented the way we look at athletes. Yeah, you know, he he was sort of lost to history, and that that's always fun when you can excavate somebody from, uh, uh, you know, anonymity. Walsh was really the prototype for Jerry Maguire, and though he didn't, you know, say the words, show me the money, that was, in fact, what he was doing in the 20s for Babe Ruth. Uh, their relationship started as one for a, a one-year contract where uh, Christy Walsh got him to agree to allow Walsh to syndicate ghost-written stories under his name, and it grew into a relationship where Walsh had complete control of all his finances, and he did for Babe Ruth everything that a Lee Steinberg or a Casey Close or a, Bar- a Scott Boris does today, with the exception that he could not actually negotiate directly with the Yankees. That was forboten and would remain forboten, much to the owner's great pleasure and um, advantage until Marvin Miller came along in the 1960s. I think one of the most interesting stories in the book is the battle that raged on between uh, Babe Ruth and Christy Walsh and the Curtis Candy Company, the folks who created the Baby Ruth Bar, who then claimed, oh, it had nothing to do with, with Babe Ruth. It's Grover <laughs> Cleveland's daughter, who had, had been dead 15 years when the candy bar was introduced. Yeah, I, I, I love that story, and I'm glad you mentioned it. Because some people are like, what is she doing going off into, you know, legal stuff? And the the thing that she was doing was trying to show that what Babe Ruth and Christy Walsh were doing in in monetizing his celebrity and in, and in treating him um, and marketing him as an entertainer, not just as a guy who hit balls out of ballparks, um, was so radically different that the law couldn't catch up with him and didn't catch up with him until 1951, when the right of publicity finally became a part of the legal canon. But when Curtis Candy decided in 1919 to rename a failing candy bar, uh, the, uh, what was it, the candy cake, um, to um, name it the Baby Ruth, um, there was no legal recourse for Babe Ruth to sue and say, wait a minute, you're capitalizing on my name and likeness. So Curtis could get away with this cockamamie story, as you mentioned, that it was really in honor of Grover Cleveland's dead daughter, Baby Ruth <laughs> Cleveland, who I think had died in 1904. We've heard a lot through the years about uh, Babe Ruth's young life and the St. Mary's Industrial School, and a lot of that, as you point out in the book, comes from a a fairly, well, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, embellished, fictitious version by the legendary Westbrook Pegler. Uh, The real childhood of Babe Ruth was very different than people were led to believe. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, people ask me all the time, what what most surprised you? and, and there's two things. One was how bad it really was, how Dickensian it was, mm. and that it was kept quiet for you know, for this long. Um, you know, 
plenty of other biographers tried um, to get at this yawning gap in his biography um, that I was able to fill. And the only reason I was able to do it that they couldn't was because of the recent availability of digitized family documents housed in state archives and of newspapers that are either long defunct or even if they're still publishing today where you'd have to have read in microfilm, you know, a year's worth of newsprint to find what I could find with a click of the mouse. So the the point about the childhood of a little boy that his family called little George is that he was a product of a, I mean, the, the, term of art is a broken home, but it was it this wasn't just a broken mm. home. This was a demolished home. His parents were divorced, and the divorce was made public in the papers of the of Baltimore and the Baltimore Sun and Baltimore American. And the grounds that it was granted on right. uh, were made public. And those were George A. George um, Ruth Senior charged his wife with adultery and drunkenness and was awarded custody of the three surviving children of that marriage in, in May 1906. And the consequence for Babe Ruth, who had been first sent off to um, St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys on June 13, 1902, was that his fate was sealed. His father had neither the time or nor the interest in um, uh, to raise his kid. Um, and so in the absence of fact since those papers and documents were hidden for so long, mythology filled in this void. And one myth was that he was an orphan. And he would protest that. I mean, people, reporters would come to him and say, so you're an orphan and you were raised in an orphanage. No, I had parents, he would say. But he never went further. And why, why would he? Who would want to advertise, you know, the truly ugly facts of his parents' divorce. Who would want to advertise, and if, if he even knew it, that two of the four siblings that died while he was still a little boy died of starvation? Um, so by the time he sent off to St. Mary's, um, when he's seven years old, you know, he's witnessed the death of four siblings. And despite that, they still don't want him. You know, there's only mm. two kids left, and they still don't want him. So understanding what happened to the little boy was key to understanding how and why he became the big fella. Like he needed to be that larger-than-life character who was surrounded by thousands of boys in God knows how many ballparks. That filled, they filled in a gap that was missing in his childhood. And, and, and it was it, also very familiar to him, because after all, at St. Mary's, he was raised in a, you know, in a dorm with you know, 130 kids sleeping head to toe in, on one floor of, a, of one dorm. So he knew how to be public. What he didn't know how to be was alone. And his second wife, Claire, would tell family members that he just couldn't stand to be alone. And it certainly helps understand uh, the appetites that he had uh, you know, for for all things, all the pleasures that he didn't experience as a young boy in the streets of Baltimore. Yeah, he he um, he. One of the key things that his daughter Julia Ruth Stevens, who is alive at one hundred and two, 
uh, told me was that the only thing he ever said to her about his time at St. Mary's was this, I never felt full. Mm. And that is both a statement of actual hunger, because the brothers who ran the school were perpetually behind in on their bills. They were constantly in debt and struggling to care for the number of kids that were sent to them. Um, and they had something like six cents of, uh, you know, six cents a kid to feed them. But it was also, I think, um, and, uh, a statement of how hungry he was for love and attention of a family that he did, that he never got. And so, yeah, he filled himself up for the rest of his life once he was out of there with women and with with food and with cigars and uh, and certainly with beer. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, these kids get meat once a week. And what, what did they get? Hot dogs. Is it, <laughs> is it any wonder that he gorged himself on hot dogs? He was also dogged throughout his young life and even into his professional career uh, with rumors about his lineage and some pretty racist uh, comments about his appearance and uh, whether or not he might be African-American. Did that help him along the way have a better understanding uh, and even identify a bit with people of color who were going through their own struggles? You know, Rich, I wish I, I wish I had been able to find you know, um, a written statement or an article or something um, which quoted him on that, I, I couldn't. You know, the, the only time he ever confronted those rumors was in the 1922 World Series. Um, he, the, the name, the, the uh, very, very racist name that was given to him on the playgrounds of St. Mary's, which is based purely on stereotypical ideas of African-American appearance, like a big, big wide nose and, um, and, and thick lips. That, that name followed him into the major league. Right. And, you know, as you know, dugouts are no places for sissies. And so people will yell and scream anything they think will distract you from your business at home plate. And so a lot of, racist things um, throughout his career, including during this World Series, where a guy named Johnny Rawlings, who was at that point a scrub for the New York Giants, you know, was screaming epithets at him throughout uh, the series. And finally, after a particularly bad game, he got fed up. And of course, as you know, the Yankees were still sharing uh, the polo grounds with the Giants there last year there. And he goes over into the Giants locker room, a breach of etiquette, and picks this guy up by the scruff of his neck and says, you can call me a blank and you can call me a blank blank, but don't just don't get personal. And then he notices that there are all these reporters standing there. And um, he begs these guys, the beat writers, not to write what had transpired. And they, uh, uh, they agreed. They didn't write it. Um, and so that part of his response to the rumors about his ethnicity did not become public till Frank Graham wrote it in his history of the Yankees in the 1940s. We're talking with Jane Levy about her book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth 
and the world he created. One of the things I love about this book, because there have been a number of books written about Ruth before, but the structure that you use and centering it around this barnstorming tour when he reached the height of, of popularity, I, I thought was a wonderful way to tell the story and really help put us as readers uh, into his life and, and look at the world through the eyes of Babe. Thank you for saying that, because <laughs> the people who don't like the book don't like it because it is not linear. And I felt, you know, that so many really good books had been written already, you know, chief among them, Bob Creamer's book, um, and most recently, Lee Montfield's book that were, you know, soup to nuts, traditional biographies. And I didn't think there was any percentage in trying to improve on those. Um, and so, as I said, I want to, you know, he's king of the world in October 1927. <laughs> he's just hit his 60th home run, circling the bases, crowing, 60, count him 60. Let's see some other son of a bitch do that. <laughs> and then he leads the Yankees to a sweep of the Pirates, and he hits the only two home runs in that World Series. And then he and Lou Gehrig, who was, of course, the MVP that year, um, in large measure because you couldn't be named MVB twice under the under those rules. <laughs> right. um, he and Garrett um, and Christy Walsh take off on what amounted to a victory tour of America, taking you know the show on the road to places that had never seen Major League Baseball players. And you know it is so typical of Major League Baseball that back then they didn't see what Babe Ruth knew that he was creating a market and showing that, that there was an appetite for Major League Baseball in places where it wasn't played and where it was just beginning to be heard on radio. Is he, in many ways, the antithesis of uh, your earlier subjects, Sandy Koufax, who was such a private person, and then Mickey Mantle, who <laughs> grew very weary of his celebrity as time went on? Um, I don't really think so. I mean, I, I think there's a way in which the books are actually very connected, but I didn't see it, frankly, until it was over. Um, in some ways, they're all about celebrity. And Koufax was a guy who eschewed it, who knew um, himself well enough uh, and knew what, what the world was like enough to realize that the kind of celebrity of, of the, in the modern era, um, and this was before, you know, cell phone cameras and, and um, Twitter feeds, it, it is, is corrosive of, of a person's sense of self, and it can eat your soul. And he's enough of a person, uh, a whole person, as they say in Yiddish, um, that he didn't want any part of that. I mean, as a player... You know, he always answered questions. He never hid in locker rooms. He always answered the questions, but the questions weren't the ones that are asked today. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that we've lost a, a sense of what the difference is between um, being reclusive and being and having a sense of privacy in the old sense, fashioned way, a sense of the word. Um, so that was Kofax. Mantle, I think, was destroyed by celebrity. Because here's this 19-year-old kid who comes to New York off the, um, you know, uh, the plains of Oklahoma, where his father would, you know, work in the in the lead and zinc mines and die from a disease that killed so many of those um, miners. 
and he was completely unprepared for New York Cafe Society, um, and he was completely um, a sitting duck for everyone who wanted to buy the Nick a drink, not knowing that alcoholism ran deep in his family and that they were, in essence, helping to kill him. Um, and Ruth is the guy who created Celebrity. Yes, I think he had more of a personality for it than the other two, um, but they're, they're not completely opposites. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they're reflective of the times in which they played and, um, and their upbringing. Well, Jane, the times have changed so much in the last 90 years. Do you think we'll ever see a celebrity the size and with the, the reach and the scope of a Babe Ruth again? I think, I think it's, you know, the media, as we like to call it, is so fractured. It appears in so many different ways, um, and the marketing uh, is, is so much bigger. Uh, yeah, there'll probably be somebody, but it's probably not going to be a baseball player. Um, you know, it's the nature of, of human beings that that we evolve, and that somebody takes a cha- takes as a challenge what you know the best before them could do, and said, "I'm going to do it better. I'm going to do it different. I'm going to exceed them." So, yeah, somebody's going to come around who will amaze us. But I think the attention um, is so fragmented. And the attention span is so small that it would be hard for anybody to dominate um, the headlines and the attention of the of the country the way Babe Ruth did. I absolutely love the book, The Big Fella. I've read a lot about Ruth over the years, but I feel like I know him better after reading this book than any of the others I've read. Jane, it's a great pleasure for us to talk with you. Thank you for making time for us. Rich, do you have time for one more story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, always. Okay, cool. Um, You know, uh, even back in Ruth's day, you know, there was cynicism. And so people thought um, and snickered behind his back that all the stuff he did for kids, all the hospital visits and things, were just for show or for PR. Now, it is true that Christy Walsh, his agent, was a really smart guy, and he understood that um, pictures of Ruth eating a gigantic uh, turkey leg <laughs> at Thanksgiving, uh, for example, um, would go a long way to uh, countering the next bad story of him, you know, running amok or getting fined or suspended by Miller Huggins or whatever it was. So, yeah, Christy Walsh was certainly going to use that stuff. But I think his affinity for children was was absolutely real. And even in his dying days, literally the last days of his life, um, he was still on the road uh, working for the Ford Motor Company, uh, which was the only company that would pay him to do anything. Um he was so sick that that they would hire nurses to go with him on his on his train trips. Um, and that last summer of '48, he went to St. Louis to Sportsman's Park, where there were 10,000 kids who were supposed to have a clinic, a baseball clinic with Babe Ruth. Of course, he was so weak he could barely hold a bat. And the one kid who was designated to be photographed with him and 
you know, learn these tips from him was the son of the owner of the Browns, Billy DeWitt um, Jr., who is now known as Senior, but that's that's complicated, but it, you get the point. And he wore, actually, uh, the, his uniform later was used by Eddie Goodell in the, his fav, famous at-bat for, um, for the Browns. But after that, Babe Ruth went to Minnesota and to Minneapolis. And um, by this point, he was just really on his last legs. But he agrees to do a radio interview. And what's significant to me about that is think about when his career began, 1914, when fame and the world's knowledge of you was as big only and circumscribed by the circulation of a daily newspaper. There was no radio in 1914, right? And here he is at the end of his life, sitting in a, with a little boy in his lap. His little boy's name was Johnny Ross. And Johnny was blind, and Babe could hardly talk. The cancer that would kill him within the next month or so, um, which was nasopharyngeal cancer, had um, surrounded the carotid artery and was pressed on uh, the nerve by his eye, causing his eye to and he was in a lot of pain, and he could barely talk. So Johnny is going to interview him, and he asks him who he thinks is going to win the pennant, and Dave gives some answer, and he asks him about his autobiography, which had just been published, um, which he had very little to do with because he was too sick, really, to talk or to contribute. Uh, and then the kid asks him how he feels, and he says, oh, my throat is really hurting. And and I've got a you know my headache something awful, and uh, the kid gets quiet, and Babe gets quiet, and he puts his arm around this little boy and says, "It's okay, Johnny. I think we're both out of words." Mm. Yeah, the the last couple of chapters in the epilogue of the book uh, are just heartbreaking. Him uh, re- uh, refereeing wrestling matches, uh, uh, going off to work with William Bendix on the film to try and teach him how to swing a bat. And it, it's such a sad ending for a guy, but he, he seemed to maintain that, uh, that positive and in some ways that childlike attitude right till the end. Well, that's what he knew how to do. What he knew how to do was to be Babe Ruth. And what baseball did by virtue of never finding a place for him in the game after he retired um, in June 1935, having played three awful months for the Boston Braves and being disappointed by, you know, in, in the promises that weren't kept by the owner, Judge Fuchs. Um, you know, the last 13 years of his life, even before the cancer, were, I think, excruciating because it was exactly the same kind of abandonment in, to him that he had encountered as a child uh, when his family, you know, abandoned him to the care of the Zavarian brothers at St. Mary's Industrial School. So I think there was a, his, one of his granddaughters said to me, um, he was a window wisher, um, mm-hmm. meaning that he would walk by or drive by some house in some city where he'd see a family sitting around a table um, at dinner talking, and um, he would wonder, why didn't I have that? And so he made baseball his family. He made all those boys who clung to him his family. And when it was gone, um, you know, uh, he really didn't know 
how to be. Um, and that you asked about the difference between him and Koufax and Mantle. I would say that that was the biggest difference. Koufax is somebody who knew who he was with or without a baseball uniform on. I don't think Babe Ruth really did. The big fellow, Babe Ruth, of the world he created. Uh, Jane Levy, thank you so much for talking with us. Love the book and uh, appreciate you carving out a little time this afternoon to chat with us about this wonderful read. Thanks so much, Rich. It's a pleasure. Happy holidays, everybody. That's Jane Levy here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, Quinn Cummings will join us and talk about well, any number of things. First, this word from our friends and sponsors at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For more than five years now, our friends Dustin and Tim at Nice Brewing Company have been using their love of science, their German heritage, and much more to create incredibly unique beers under the label of Nice Brewing Company, G-N-E-I-S-S. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim uh, take care of business with all kinds of different beers. Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, seasonal offerings as well. You'll love them all. When you go out to eat, you go out to a bar, ask for your favorite beers. All over the state of Maine from Nice Brewing Company and now available throughout the state in cans as well. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Back here on Downtown, the podcast. Remember this? All your life you've waited For love to come and stay And now that I have found It was a huge hit for David Gates, the lead singer of Bread. Carrie Haskell poo-pooed him when he saw his looks on YouTube. It was the 70s. Everybody had that hair. Okay. <laughs> It was, it was the wide collar and the rhinestones that threw me. Oh, there's no question about it. It was, uh, I believe, an Academy Award nominee for Best Original Song and also a film that earned an Academy Award for Richard Dreyfus as Best Actor. And our next guest on the podcast, nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her role. We're talking about Quinn Cummings, who uh, went on to a role on the ABC television series Family, has since uh, given up acting, but has been a very successful writer, the author of a number of books, and one of the best follows around out there on Twitter, out there, out there on Twitter as a, a political commentator. We had a chance to talk recently with the talented Quinn Cummings. Got to cut right to the chase. You might well be our hero here on the show, uh, we uh, we do a segment every day called Tweets of the Day, and I don't know that we've ever gone more than two days in a row without having one of your tweets. You are amazing out there. Well, thank you. Um, I, I will say this. Uh, at one point, my partner, who I refer to as consort in, in public life, said to me, because we were talking about how disgusting social media was and how toxic and corrosive it is, and I was agreeing with him. Yes, it is. And he looked at me oddly and said, but you seem to like it. And I thought about it and I said, you know, those bacteria that evolved to thrive in a septic tank. <laughs> yeah, that's me. 
Well, you do seem to like it, and people, well, as we know, people are not on their best behavior out there in social media, but uh, but you deal with them, you put them in their place uh, as well as anybody out there, but how do you avoid just tuning the whole thing out and moving on with your life? Uh, well, a couple of things. I decided, gosh, just about three and a half years ago now, I had Believe it or not, I was raised right. I don't know where it went, but I was raised right. And, you know, there is something in my head about no conversation about, you know, race, politics, or, or sex, or religion. And, uh, you know, when when the 2016 political machine started to churn up, and he sailed down the escalator and into our hearts, or someplace further south, um, I... I said, oh, God, I would love to write jokes about him, but I fear I'm going to put people off of me and I'm not going to sell any more books. And my sweetheart looked at me and said, honey, you're a writer. Nobody's buying books anyway. You might as well entertain yourself. <laughs> well, one of the things I like about Twitter is that you, you do get to self-select a little bit. And, and even though there are millions of people out there, I, I think of the people whose work I especially appreciate, like yourself, as sort of this uh, secret club that I'm eavesdropping on. But I'm curious, who are the people that you enjoy following that uh, maybe maybe we need to know about if we're not already on board? Uh, well, let's see. This is kind of a, a hard name to say and, and see. Oh, no, she twittened. Uh, you know, like, oh, no, she didn't, but Twitter, uh, is a uh, woman, as far as I know, it's a woman, uh, I think she works somewhere in the Southeast. She is the best at, I view this as a game, she is the best at the game. Uh, Golden Gate Blonde is terrific. Molly Jong Fast oh, yes. is wonderful. Oh, Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson takes <laughs> no prisoners. Love Rick Wilson. Uh, Charlie Pierce. Charlie Pierce. I ha- I stand by my assertion that Charlie Pierce is our Mark Twain, and we're lucky to have him. That's a great group right there to get started with. Now, I also saw that you worked uh, with another friend of our show, Amy Dickinson, recently in sharing a little advice. She is a doll. She is officially a doll person. I like her very much. Well, you had wonderful advice for uh, parents of uh, a young woman who wanted to pursue a career in the arts, specifically on Broadway. Can can you pass along a little of that to anybody who might be listening and and thinking that their child has got some talent that they would like to take to the next level as you did? Well, what the family was asking, and it was a wonderful and thoughtful question, is the thing that makes their child so good at this, so compelling to watch, such a wonderful person, is that she is a sensitive soul. And this kind of a life is hell on a sensitive soul. And what they were saying was, how can we love her, support her, encourage her, but also teach her to keep some part of herself okay? And Amy had wonderful practical advice about you get another job, you don't put your your life well-being on acting and i said yeah and the only other thing i added was start writing your own material you know there is in in my family we believe that a bad experience is just a good anecdote waiting to be born (laughs) so if you are going through the slings and arrows of the performer's world but you know that you're going to create instagram videos of these characters you're working on you can say, okay, well, this agent who's being completely hateful to me is someone that I can turn into a character. 
And I pointed out to, you know, the people reading it that Lin-Manuel Miranda and Rachel Bloom created for themselves the material they wanted to do. That may be how it has to be done now. We're talking with Quinn Cummings here on Downtown. On your blog, you say that writing may be your only skill. Well, we know that's not the case. But when did you when did you start and when did you discover that you had a gift for this? Um, thank you. I, I'm always loath to say that I, I like doing it very much, and I think you get better at the things you like doing. But I was the only child of older parents. I had a first career where I was frequently the only child on a set where everybody else was 15, 20, or more years older than I was. In a lot of ways, I was always in the position of observing people. And I think if you have that kind of temperament, and I'm very introverted, I'm not shy, I just don't need a lot of company. So I spend a lot of time in my own head. So I think that may be where it began. I remember uh, I was a fairly indifferent student, and the only thing I ever enjoyed writing in high school was we had to write, a, uh, you know, like a, a journal for our, the prep school I went to sent us away to stay in Yosemite for a week, which was ludicrous because <laughs> we were soft rich Los Angeles children, the offspring of producers and uh, well-paid actors. We were not designed to be in nature. And the week just went worse and worse and worse. It began with one of us chopping off the tip of his finger, and it went downhill from there. (laughs) Wow. And when we had to write the journal, everybody else's journals were anodyne. They, They got it done. And my feeling was, oh, this was a terrible idea, and I'm going to talk about it. And I look back and I realize I was making fun of myself, I was making fun of others, and I was pointing out the inherent absurdity of what was a fundamentally bad idea (laughs) rooted in good intentions. Turns out nothing much has changed. That's mostly what I like doing is saying, is anyone else noticing this is absurd? Well, a few people are, thankfully, and a few more every day. I wanted to ask you, in terms of your acting career, if something happens to uh, come on television, movie, a television show that you were in, do you um, do you look at that and, and realize that as a part of your youth, or is it in some ways like another person when you see that? Uh, I will tell you an odd fun fact about me. I have never seen The Goodbye Girl from beginning to end. Um. I went to both premieres, but because I was 10 years old, the people around me understandably thought, let's get her out of the theater before she gets wiggly because <laughs> we've got the party afterwards. And it was good because I would have been bored. I had seen a lot of this being shot and movies shoot at a fairly glacial pace. So it wasn't like any of this was new to me. If I suddenly found myself on television, I'm not sure that I would even slow down in changing to the next channel. <laughs> I I just, um, I have figured out about myself that I am freakishly lacking in sentiment. Um, And I think that I just, I lack nostalgia. So it's not even like I feel as if it is or is not me. I think my question to you would be, what gain do I get from looking at this? And you Mm. would say something, well, it was you when you were a kid. And then I would stare blankly at you. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about Edendale? Oh, thank you for asking me about that. I started writing a short, I want very much to write a comedy of manners, a satire about the neighborhood in which I live in Los Angeles, which is called Silver Lake. Silver Lake has always been bohemian. It was uh, three of the first studios were built out here. Uh, my grocery store used to, was the first Disney Studios. It's always been bohemian. It was uh, one of its nicknames was Red Hill in the 1940s because it was just all communists, and then it was all <laughs> communists and homosexuals, and now it's communist homosexuals and people who have uh, uh, series deals. But it's it's very. It's a very unique place within a weird city. And I'm still, thank you for noticing that. I'm still trying to figure out, I started writing it, and then I thought, oh, God, I don't know where I'm going with this. I can go any one of a number of ways. But I'm happy with what I wrote so far. I might as well put it up and let people see what I did. And then I'll see what it, it comes to later on. They, you know, now that you're reminding me, maybe I'll figure out a way to put it up on Twitter. It'll be completely unlike anything else I do, but that's what I do. Uh, you I can... Keep- it up. You can find it on Quinn's website, quincummings.com. Uh, I, very few things that I enjoy as much on Twitter, and I have to go back every time one of them is in the news and revisit your nickname's cheat sheet. <laughs> yes. my uh, it, it began with my... I refuse to refer to a certain individual by his name because... Attention is all he really wants, and he wants respect, love, and dignity, so I gave him a nickname, which originally was Giant Toddler. And then at some point, because he really, every behavior was that of a toddler in desperate need of a nap. You know, people have said, well, that's not fair to toddlers. I'm saying he's not all toddlers. He's that toddler when you're standing in Target, and it's the end of the day, and you need to pick up two things, and you're hangry. And there is a child in front of you covered in rivulets of snot screaming for beef jerky. I'm saying he's that child. <laughs> uh, I do enjoy the second name for him, the Manchurian Pumpkin. But I think my favorite, Pumpkin. I yep. think your nickname for Steve King, or the idiot from Iowa, is my favorite. The Great White Joke? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, um, it's... I, I, I jokingly say that I do not create these, that this is the muse of nicknames that I put out a little basket of pretzels for her and hope she comes to me. But really, I never sit down and say, all right, it's time to create a nickname. Because when I do, when I have, I've ended up changing them. They haven't been great. I have to have some degree of patience and just know it will show up. Like, um, oh God, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan was for. Ever. And I kept thinking, come on, just give me the nickname, give me the nickname. And then one day I was looking at him and it popped into my head, Atlas, because <laughs> he's so fond of Ayn Rand. And it, it, whatever he's doing, it's Atlas, past tense of a verb, you know, you know, Atlas, flavored <laughs> Atlas, you know, and, and it just worked very well. But it was, it was two or three months there where I'm thinking, oh, come on. I you know I I keep I can't keep writing around the fact that I don't have a nickname for him, but things take as long as they do. And I love Carter Page only because I'm a sucker for a wonderfully obscure but awesome reference. He reminded me of a cult leader 
who was part of a suicide pact in the 19, I want to say the 1990s. Yeah. And and he has that shiny shoe-button gleam to his eye that I associate with cult leaders. And also what charms me about him is I don't think he's aware that he's in love with uh, Chris Hayes. I think he, I think he would pass the lie detector test. I don't, it may not even be that he's having pants feelings about Chris Hayes. Uh, it just seems to be a girlish crush. It's really odd. All right, Quinn, before we let you go, uh, I would, none of us know the answer, but you're the court jester, so I must ask you, how does this crazy story end? I will tell you this. For a long time, I have sworn that when we are out from under this, I am getting the first tattoo of my life. And what I'm getting is if you go online, you will find Robert Mueller's signature on the line where it says Robert Mueller III. Uh, you know, it's, it's the stuff we've been seeing on all the paperwork. I have sworn I was going to get his signature and his name underneath tattooed on my person. I think that's I think, fantastic. I think we're heading towards that. I don't know what the ride does between here and there. And my nickname in my family is Eeyore. I would have told you even a few weeks ago, this all ends in ashes and tears. It might, but I think we're going to have a couple laughs along the way. There's no question about that. You have to. Uh, Quinn, uh, it's a real delight for us to talk with you again. Uh, we love following you on Twitter. Enjoy your books as well, and uh, keep up the good fight. We all appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You have a wonderful evening. That's Quinn Cummings here on Downtown, the podcast. Our thanks to Quinn, as well as Jane Levy, the author of the wonderful book on Babe Ruth, The Big Fella. And thanks to you for joining us on this week's podcast. Spread the word, tell your friends, get them to subscribe. Uh, there's no money in it for you, but our affection, our appreciation, and gosh, isn't that worth more than money? All right, maybe not in the holiday season, but the rest of the year. Yes, uh, absolutely. Sure. We'll go with it. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength and nice brewing company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine.